everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at the summit. Uh, sorry about the parking. If you had to fight the parking here, there's actually a weed festival uh, in honor of 420 going on on the other side. So uh, if any of you meant to you know, stumble into a weed festival, you end up here at the summit church. Welcome. I understand this is a little bit different environment than probably what you were expecting, but we're glad that you're here. Here's what we're doing tonight. In this series, what we're looking at is how the people of God are meant to exist for the good of the city in which they live. And last week, what we saw is how God grabs a hold of this man named Nehemiah. He grabs a hold of his heart, and he starts stirring in his heart this burden and this calling to go back to the city of his family, a city that's broken and has been destroyed, and to come and to redeem and to restore and to rebuild it. And God turns his life upside down. He says, I can no longer stand on the sidelines. I have to get involved. Now, tonight, here's what we're going to see is the next step in Nehemiah's journey of trying to accomplish this. It's a step that we all have experienced, and it's a step that we all really significantly don't like very much, and it's this. It's the step of waiting, the step of waiting, because here's what happens is is Nehemiah's life is turned upside down, and then all of a sudden, you know what he has to do? He has to wait four months. He has to wait four months until he can take the next step. Four months is a long time, isn't it? For those of you who went to college, for those of you who are in school now, four months is about the length of an entire semester. And the reason Nehemiah had to wait, you know, he gets excited. God has this call, this burden. I'm going to go turn the world upside down. I'm going to go change Jerusalem. But then a very difficult reality sets in on his life. Oh, wait a second. I'm a slave, which means that, like, I don't just get paid vacation. I don't just get, you know, time off. My boss owns me. He literally owns me. And I can't just go submit my two weeks notice and go work somewhere else. And thus begins an arduous four-month wait before he can really take another significant step. Four months difference between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. Now, here's what you know from common experience. We all know in this room that waiting is that time period when burdens and callings go to die right? Waiting is the time period where burdens and callings go to die. You know this, you've experienced. For some of you in this room, you have in moments been very motivated to get into shape. Maybe you felt called to all of a sudden run a half marathon because you went to the dentist and you're reading a magazine in the waiting room and there was some article about marathoners. You're like, I could do that. I could do that one day. And so you get fired up, you go home, I'm called to run. You run two days, but then it snowed. You know, you take a couple days off. You instead eat ice cream, watch TV, and you're like, I enjoy this a lot more than I do running in my free time, and the calling goes and dies, right? We've all experienced that. Others of you have felt motivated, inspired, called at times to all of a sudden become readers. Maybe you're at a party, you get into a conversation with somebody, they're extremely well-read, all you do is watch TV, you get very motivated, called, you go home, go on Amazon.com, order a ton of books, you're going to read them as soon as they arrive. The only problem is, is that it took three days for them to arrive. And in the meantime, in the waiting, you got hooked on Gilmore Girls on Netflix, and you're in like season four of that, and it's like game over, the boxes never open. Others of you, you're young, you're trying to figure out what to do with your life. God, what are you calling me to do? What am I supposed to do next? And what happens? You see some movie with a really cool profession and you get inspired, fired up. I'd love to do that. You saw Top Gun. You saw Tom Cruise, Ray-Ban aviators, doing barrel rolls in his jet, 80s music blasting in the background. You're like, I found my life's calling. This is what God has called me to do. And you're ready then to fly a jet tomorrow, but then all of a sudden, you know, you do a little bit of research on Google and you find out, you know, you have to like actually go to school and get licensed and get in your hours and things like that. And you're like, I was more up for the option of like being a jet fighter, you know, tomorrow 
Like tomorrow, is that an option? And once you find out it isn't, the calling goes and dies. We know this. We know this. It's that we get excited. We feel these burdens. We feel these callings. We're ready to take the next step. And then when we wait, those burdens and callings go to die. And tonight, what we're going to see in this text is a man by the name of Nehemiah who has to wait, but yet the calling of God on his life still goes forward. Here's what we're going to see him do. In order for the calling to move forward in the waiting period, here's what we're going to do. Very clear. Here's the main idea, right to the point. What Nehemiah is going to do is he is going to focus on work. Okay? He's going to focus on work. And specifically, two different types, two different categories of work. These are categories that we're all familiar with in this room. Our work and God's work. Now, like I said, this is a category, these are categories that you're already familiar with, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, as well as here's what you need to know before we unpack these, is you are naturally better at favoring one of these categories in your life over the other, okay? You're naturally better at favoring your work or favoring God's work. Let me explain. I think of it a lot like driving a car. Some of you are naturally very good at holding on to the steering wheel of your life. You're responsible, uh, you, you work hard, you understand that if something's going to happen, you have to make it happen. You were raised to think that way, and so you're a hard worker, and you make things, you make it happen. It's up to you if it's going to happen, right? Now, the good thing is that you're responsible. The bad part of that is that as soon as things kind of go off course, as soon as life throws you a curveball, as soon as God takes you down a path you weren't really expecting, like you're not only holding on to that steering wheel, you like have a kung fu death grip on that thing and you are not letting go. God, I have a plan. I have it all figured out. I have a flow chart. I can do this myself. Don't worry about it. Now, others of you are the exact opposite. You're not, you know, kung fu, white knuckling the the, the, the steering wheel. You were like, Jesus, take the wheel. That is just naturally the way that you are. And so on one hand, you're great at praying, having faith. You're great at saying things like, I'm just waiting on God. I'm just waiting on God to speak. Even if you're not a Christian tonight, you have a sort of vaguely spiritual version of this where you're waiting on a sign. You're waiting for the universe to open up a door for you. What's so good about this, if this is your natural default, is you have some humility. You have some humility to acknowledge that if something substantial is going to happen in your life, it's going to require something or someone bigger than yourself in order for it to happen. You have some awareness of the limitations of your own natural giftedness. The bad part of this is you tend to be irresponsible, tend not to do the things you're supposed to do, tend not to take the necessary actions, tend not to work hard, and then you justify it with all sorts of spiritual language, religious jargon. You know, you kind of bring God into it, play that card, and that's the reason you're actually pretty lazy and not taking the steps you know you're supposed to take. All of us tend to either emphasize our work or God's work. We, we, we fail, though, to properly balance and emphasize both. And tonight, fortunate for us, what we're going to do is get a glimpse into a man who does a great job at emphasizing both. In the midst of the waiting period, emphasizing both our work and God's work. Okay? So we're going to jump into the text. We're going to jump into the end of chapter 1, just like we just read. We're going to read that one sentence, jump into chapter 2. What we're going to see is Nehemiah is first going to challenge us to emphasize our work. Okay? So let's look at the text. Nehemiah chapter 1, very last sentence there. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now here's what Nehemiah is doing here. He is giving us his job title. He's giving us his job description. He was cupbearer to the king. Now many of you in this room, you think you have bad jobs, you think you have tough jobs. Let me tell you about Nehemiah's job. He was a cupbearer. Now, he worked as a slave for a Persian king, and Persian kings were notorious for having some incredible parties, like 
frat parties on steroids. And so they boozed a lot. They drank a lot of liquor. And because of that, foreign kings who were enemies with these Persian kings would basically realize that the, the simplest way to assassinate one of these kings is by poisoning their wine. And so in order to defend against this, the way that they would do this is they would hire a slave to be a cupbearer. And so Nehemiah's job is essentially testing wine before the king drinks it. If it's not poisoned, he gives it to the king. If it is poisoned, he dies. Okay, so you think you had a tough job. His job is harder. Retirement equates dying, okay? So whatever you have is better than him. So here's the thing, is at the same time, as at the same time, even though this was a difficult job, it doesn't mean it was a meaningless job, okay? It was difficult, but not meaningless. This was an incredibly important job in the life of the palace. It required a ton of trustworthiness, a ton of faithfulness. You had to really work your way up, sort of the slave food chain in order to be able to have this job. And what we see from the very beginning of this text is Nehemiah is the type of man who exhibits tremendously hard work. The faithfulness, the, trustwor- the trustworthiness, the, the capacity to be trusted in this manner in order for him to have this role. He is a tremendously hard worker. And we see that not just from his job title or description, but also the nature of the relationship between him and the king. And we see that. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, focus right here, okay? Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, here's the thing. I know that in the Disney movies you were raised to watch. Old kings are portrayed as being jolly old men, beard, kind of, you know, round belly, very wonderful to be around, bear a strong resemblance to Santa Claus, right? Now, the problem is, is that's not the way it was in history, okay? Especially not with this king. This guy was brutal. He was unbelievably brutal. And the reason that's important is because He wasn't the type of guy who goes around to his slaves and is like, hey, how's it going? How's the wife and kids? Hey, you're looking a little sad. Let's turn that frown upside down. How about a hug? Like kings don't do that back then. So this is unbelievably bizarre that a king would take notice of a slave's emotions on his bearded face and say, what's going on? Tell me what's going on in your life. What we're seeing from the very beginning is not only that Nehemiah was a tremendously hard worker in order to be able to hold this position, but he was a tremendously hard worker to have the king's favor in this sort of capacity, to have this sort of attention, to have this sort of notice by the king meant that he worked so hard, he was so winsome, he was so trustworthy, he was so involved in hard working that he earned an unparalleled amount of favor from the king. What we see is something that's very, very simple, yet incredibly profound. Then in the midst of waiting for Nehemiah, in the midst of having an awful and terrible job, you know what he does? He doesn't whine. He doesn't complain. He doesn't dream about how one day in the future he'll do great things for God. You know what he does? He gets to work. He gets to work. And you know what we would do in that situation? If we're just honest, you know what we do? We'd whine, we'd complain, we'd find strategic ways to get away with doing as little amount of work as possible. We would quit, wouldn't we? The calling and the burden would be extinguished. But what does Nehemiah do? 
He says God is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. The sovereign God of the universe is on the throne. And he knows where he has me. And because of that, because of that, I am going to carry out my calling, not just two years from now, when it feels right. I'm going to carry it out right now. What he has is such a faith and a confidence in the goodness of God is that not only when it's convenient, but when it's inconvenient, not only when it's desirable, but when it's undesirable, he is going to give his all and he is going to work hard and it makes an incredible difference and he begins carrying out this calling in his life. Now, here's the thing. I know that many of you, many of you have just started work. Many of you are new college graduates. And because of that, you do not have your dream job right now. So you can relate to what Nehemiah is going through. Maybe, you know, your job isn't as bad as being a professional poison tester for the king, but it's like a close second. As you read this text, you're like, Nehemiah's boss likes him a lot more than my boss likes me. You know, I understand also that for some of you in this room, you really like your job, okay? I understand that not all of you hate your job. And we're going to talk to those of you who are like that in a few weeks. Nehemiah eventually gets promoted. But still, like for me, I'm living my dream job. I'm working my dream job right now. But if that's you, you still know that work is still work, right? Not every single day you wake up, it's sunshine, rainbows, birds fly and sing a song to you as you go to work. Work is still work. So you can relate to what Nehemiah is going through here as well. What we see is for most of us, we see our job as largely nothing more than an obligation, a hoop that we have to jump jump through in order to get the bills paid, uh, an obligation that has to be fulfilled in order for us to survive. And yet what we see for Nehemiah, a man working an incredibly undesirable job in an agonizing period of waiting, is he is embodying a biblical picture of what it means for us to work, a a quality that will be written about specifically thousands of years after he will die in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul when he writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. I heard a great example of this a few weeks ago in the life of our church. Usually kind of the tendency is to want to yell and say we're not doing this, but I heard a great example of somebody who did this in the life of our church. I don't know if you guys know Lauren Vandenberg. Lauren's right there. I'll try to embarrass her as much as possible. Yeah, I know. I should have gotten permission before I did this, but here we go. Um, Lauren's, Lauren's husband, Adrian, told me this incredible story. Lauren, for the first few months that she worked in Denver, worked as a telemarketer. Now, that is a really, that is nobody's dream job. Can I just, let's just be honest about that. I worked as a telemarketer for several years in order to put myself through grad school. And worst job ever is, you know, poison tester for the king. Like 1B is cold calling people at dinner and in the morning. I mean, nobody wants to hear from you. Everybody's hanging up on you. Everybody's getting mad at you. Probably many of you got calls from Lauren. You didn't even know it. You hung up on her, cussed her out. You can apologize later behind the building. It's okay. Make ends meet. But I heard this incredible story. Adrian, her husband, told me this, that a few weeks ago she found a different job. She went in, submitted her two weeks' notice. And typically, if you've worked in an office, you know that when somebody submits their two weeks' notice, sort of the next step is you're not going to come in the next day. Like, the employer knows that you're a dead man walking Thanks for coming. Pack up your stuff. We appreciate your hard work. We'll never see you again. And apparently what happened was that Lauren had made such an impact in her workplace, cold calling strangers across the country for the glory of God, that her boss, pretty much for the first time in her company's history, said, we would love to have you come in tomorrow so we can just say goodbye. 
We would love to have you come in so we can celebrate and express our appreciation. And apparently people wrote her cards and said thank you. And she just made a major impact. Thank you for your faith. Thank you for your example. Thank you for being involved in our lives. Thank you for working hard. Thank you for cold calling strangers at inconvenient hours with a product that almost nobody wants for the glory of God. And yet what would we do in a situation like that? We would whine we would complain, we would strategize about how to spend as much time on Facebook without getting in trouble and getting our boss's attention and getting fired, wouldn't we? We would do everything other than give our all for the glory of God. We would see it as a job, as an obligation, as a duty, as a hoop that has to be jumped through in order to make the ends meet. But when somebody works for the glory of God, particularly in the moments of waiting, particularly when it's not desirable, particularly when it's not easy. People can't help, can't help but take notice. And here's where I want to plead with many of you. It's because many of you in this room, you work jobs you don't like, and because of it, like we've said over and over, it's nothing more than a duty. It's more, nothing more than an obligation. And I pray that you would see what Nehemiah saw, is that no matter what you're doing, it is a calling. For those of you who don't like your job, for those of you who don't like your hours, for those of you who don't like benefits, for those of you who don't even know what benefits are yet, for those of you who don't like your boss, for those of you who aren't intellectually stimulated by the work that you're doing, that what you would understand and that what you would grasp and that what you would believe is that when you put your feet on the floor in the morning, what you're getting ready for is not a duty, it's not an obligation, it's not a burden, it's not a job, it is a calling. And because of that, when you go to work, what you would do then is you would work hard for the glory of God. You would be on time, you would be responsible, you would tell the truth, you wouldn't cut corners, you wouldn't leave work unfinished that then falls on your other coworkers, which makes them resentful of you, that you would work with excellence, that people would look at you and say, you are the best worker here, the best coworker here. You are pleasant to be around. I enjoy having you around. That you would work thoughtfully and instead of trying to get through the 40 hours a week that you have to work, because you have to work them, instead of putting your head down and getting your work done as quickly as possible so that you can get home and get in front of the TV, instead of spending your free time on your iPhone, playing games that are totally meaningless, texting friends that aren't anywhere close to you, instead what you would understand is that God has given you influence and that you interact with tons of people made in the image of God who matter and are carrying burdens with them, that if they were shared from this stage, you would weep. And they have nobody to carry that burden with them. That instead of going to a job, instead of going to an obligation, you would be going to your calling. Especially those of you who, who what you experience, what you will experience tomorrow morning is the furthest thing from a calling. That's what Nehemiah does. And it makes a tremendous Impact. It seems very simple, but it's something that's quickly lost on our generation. The very clear and the very simple responsibility to work, to work hard and to get to work. Now, here's the thing. The story doesn't end here, and Nehemiah doesn't just have confidence in his work. Even though he works hard, he works tremendously hard. He makes a tremendous impact in, this, in his workplace, in his sort of workplace, slave place, whatever you want to call it. But he ultimately has his, uh, his uh, hope and his confidence, not just in himself and his capacity to work hard, but in God himself and his capacity to work on our behalf. Now, 
Let's look at verse 4, then where this continues, where he, he fixes his attention on God's work. He says this, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now this is a really funny kind of quick prayer, right? Because we're in the middle of a conversation, but we hear that he prays. And so this prayer probably looked like something like, God, help me. Amen. Like that was the extent of it. No, like on his knees, no flowery language. God, help me. Amen. This was like, for those of you who are married, those of you who have had, you know, you know, long-term relationships with people. This is like the text message you send. You know, you're at the stoplight. You don't have time. No smiley face emoticons. No exclamation points. Just get milk at the store, right? You just have the, that's just the nature of your relationship, that you can talk like that. And for Nehemiah, he was such a man of prayer. He had such a deep, intimate relationship with God. He could just be right to the point. God, help me. Amen. And then he proceeds to make a wild and crazy request. Look at verse 5, where he makes this request. He says this, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the king of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber or make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Okay, I know that's a lot. Let's break it down, okay? This is an outrageous request. This is a crazy Request. And in fact, if you look back up at verse 2, Nehemiah says he was very much afraid to make this request. Let's, let's break down exactly what it is that he's asking for. So keep in mind, he's a slave going to the king, making a request. And here's what he says. He says, I want some time off. Now, some of you, you struggle to get like a week's vacation. You get struggle, you know, get any time off. He says, I want some time off. I want 12 years paid vacation in order to go and carry this out. Now, Hear me out. Let me finish here, okay? Because there's a second thing I want to ask for as well. What I want you to do is reverse your own foreign policy. What we see in the book preceding this, in Ezra chapter 4, this same king basically said, nobody will ever rebuild the, cha- the, the city of Jerusalem because it was an enemy nation. And so it would be crazy for a foreign king to rebuild a city that was once a military opponent of theirs. Not just that, hear me out. Not only 12 years paid vacation, not only reverse your own foreign policy, but also I want you to fund the entire thing. So like fund the timber, fund safe passage, fund the temple, uh, even fund like a house for me to live in one day. That would be fantastic. This is an absolutely outrageous request. Now, as I was thinking about this week, none of us, we don't live in like warring nations. We don't like attack neighboring cities. We're not going to attack Fort Collins or Boulder anytime soon. We're all on the same team, right? So it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. As I think about this week, really the closest thing I could think of is the relationship between Coke and Pepsi. It's not really like perfect. It's kind of corny, but bear with me, okay? So everybody knows that there's two types of people. There's Coke drinkers who are awesome and Pepsi drinkers who, you know, you can figure out what the alternative of that is. Now, here's the thing. In Denver, there's a third people who don't drink sodas whatsoever. That's actually the majority, but Humble me for the sake of this illustration, okay? So imagine Coke and Pepsi, you know, rivals of one another. Coke finally puts Pepsi out of business. And as Pepsi is downsizing, Coke graciously decides to hire one of their janitors on. And as this janitor is cleaning the desk of the CEO of Coke, the CEO of Coke happens to walk into the office, have a conversation with him, notice that tears are streaming down his face and being like, what's going on, man? Like, 
can you just tell me, like, what's going on in your life? And he's like, well, here's the thing, is that my heart breaks for the Pepsi headquarters. And, and I just want to make a humble request of you, CEO of Coke. I want you to give me 12 years paid vacation to go build your rival's headquarters. And oh, by the way, if that's not too much to ask, I'd also love a billion-dollar ba- bailout in order to make this a reality. And then the CEO of Coke being like, that sounds like a terrific idea. Like, who do I make the checkout to? Like, let's make this happen. That doesn't happen, right? That doesn't happen. Well, from a human perspective, what we see in this text absolutely never happens. And yet, and yet, Nehemiah has such confidence, such a belief that the will of God will go forward, such a confidence and that God is working for his will to be done. He takes a significant step out on faith. He takes an audacious step of faith and makes the ask. And while typically what would have happened in this culture is he would have been killed for treason. Instead, the king obliges. What happens is the shift that should challenge us as well is that rather than our confidence being in our work, it shifts to being on God's capacity to work. Rather than our confidence and hope being on our will being done, our our confidence is shifted to God accomplishing his will being done. And when that is believed in our hearts, when that is truly believed, what happens then is an audacious faith is stirred up in our lives where we are willing to accomplish the impossible, where we begin to experience the impossible taking place. Now, here's the thing. Let me pause here because this is where a lot of bad teaching a lot of times slips in in the life of churches. And what happens a lot of times is then pastors say that. And then what they say is, because of that then, just believe hard enough, just give enough money, just have enough faith, and God will make the wildest dreams of your imagination come true. You can have the job you want to have. You can have the salary that you want to have. You can have the spouse you want to have. You can have the new spouse that you want to have. And here's what I'm going to say. is the most unloving thing that I could say to you right now is that God's primary concern is your will being done. The most ungracious and unloving and unbiblical thing I could say to you is that God is all about you. Because he's not. He's not. God is not primarily about our will being done, but his will being done. And when there's a shift in our hearts, where we shift then from our primary concern and our primary hope being our capacity to work to his capacity to work, where our primary concern goes from our will to his will being done. When we focus on his will and his work going forward, we attempt the impossible, and it's an incredible experience to see the impossible unfold. Now, I feel like, I'm not trying to boast here or brag here or anything, I I just feel like I'm experiencing that right now, through what has happened in the life of trying to start the Summit Church. Because from the outside, what we are doing is not just audacious. That's sort of a, that's like what your family says to you. It's idiotic. That's what like people say behind your back, and people have said that to me before. I mean, let's think like logically about what it is that even we as a church are trying to, to do here. We are trying to start a, a new church in a country that is increasingly becoming post-Christian, in a city that is already post-Christian, where most churches are either declining or they are already dead, in an economy that is the worst it's been in ages, trying to reach a generation that's like the most irreligious and theologically unsound ever in American history, 
And the goal is, is that we would plant and start a church that would grow to the point of being financially self-sustainable, that we could not only, you know, do that here in the city of Denver, but then multiply that in other similar areas throughout the country and the world. It's, it's crazy. I even remember Andy and I, a few years ago, when we were first starting it off, and it was basically just me, him, and Megan, my wife. We were sitting in his living room and sharing breakfast and, you know, in your pajamas because that's just what you do when you're in the first stages of starting something. And as we were talking about what's happened, I remember distinctly pulling out a whiteboard and dreaming about, okay, how does this thing get started? How do we get this organization off the ground? And we set sort of a dream budget. What needs to happen for us to survive the first year, which is we're 15 months in now. And I remember drawing a number on the board, $180,000. We would need to raise $180,000 to make the first year even a reality for us. Now, if that seems like a lot of money, I know for some of you, that's a drop in the bucket. For some of you, that's more money than you could comprehend. Uh, For me, it was more money than I could even begin to wrap my mind around. Because for me and Andy, like, you combine the cash in our wallets. Like, we were not getting an extra value bill at Mickey D's down the street. Like, we had nothing at the time. And yet God was faithful, and yet God was involved, and yet God was working. And what we saw is that the impossible has been accomplished. And for me, I remember leaving that time in that living room with that whiteboard, thinking to myself, is this crazy? Is this even wise? Like, is this a responsible thing for us to build our lives around? Is this a responsible thing for me even to move my family forward? And yet God stirred in my heart, at least, that if I'm going to take a risk with my life, which all of us are going to have to take risks of our lives, if I'm going to have to take a risk with my life, if I am going to have to risk everything, I'm going to risk it on the will of God being done. I'm going to risk it on God being faithful to his promises. I'm going to risk it on God planting his church in a city where he largely is not famous. And God has met me every step of the way. And what I want to plead with you for is that your confidence would shift from your work to his work. That your desires would shift from your will being done to his will being done. And you would step out with audacious faith and expect the impossible to go forward. Because let me ask you a question. If this is true, what we've read tonight is true. And God is who he says he is. If he is the God who takes a pagan king's heart and he works and changes and moves in such a way that a pagan king not only gives a slave 12 years paid vacation, not only gives a slave permission to rebuild a neighboring warring city, not only gives him permission to, to do that, but to fund the entire thing. If God can work the impossible, and you actually believe that, what would tomorrow look like for you? What would your prayer life look like? What would you begin asking God for? What would you start believing that he could work and accomplish in your life? Because here's the thing. I know, I know that tonight there are many people who are struggling mightily with unbelief. Some of you in this room, your heart is burdened for your friends and your neighbors and your family members to follow and know Jesus. And that's not just a theoretical. There are names and faces that go with those people. And you've thrown everything at them. You've thrown apologetics. You've thrown service. You've thrown everything that you have in your toolbox. And it doesn't seem like anything is happening. And you're wondering if God even cares. I know for others of you, you're struggling with more internal battles. You're struggling with past sin. You're struggling with 
present sin, you're struggling with anxiety. Many of you are struggling with depression. Many of you are trying to overcome abuse. Many of you are trying to overcome just having healthy marriages. Many of you are trying to figure out what it's like to be parents or soon to be parents. You have tremendous internal burdens and fears that you are carrying with you. And you're doing your best to try to make things better, but it doesn't seem like things are getting better. I know for others of you, for the first time in your life, I've heard you speak about how for the first time in your life, you're actually not just coming to the city as a consumer, but as a servant. You're seeing the disparity between what is and what should be. Your heart is breaking. You want to see God move, but there's so much work to be done. Can you actually make an impact? Every single one of us is carrying something. Every single one of us is struggling with something. Every single one of us is fighting the sin of unbelief. We are struggling to believe that God is who he says he is. And I want to plead with you from this text to believe that the God of the Bible is who he says he is. He is alive and he is working just as much today as he did thousands of years ago in the life of Nehemiah. And I can tell you what happens if you actually believe if you actually put into place that, that what God is looking for is for, for men and women not just to believe, not just to be consciously aware, not just to believe with their heads, but their hearts and hands to step out on audacious faith, I can tell you what happens. What happens is that sins that you thought would haunt you, bad decisions by you and other people around you that you thought would haunt you for the rest of your life, are forgiven, and you experience redemption. Actually believing. I just want to pause there and just pray that you guys believe that. It is so hard for us to believe that past sin, especially, I'm just going to speak here from the heart, It's so hard to believe past sin, especially bad sexual decisions, can ever be overcome. It's so hard to believe that. But the God of the Bible in the book of Nehemiah is alive. And he provides provides victory and redemption and restoration. I just want to plead and I want to pray for those of you who are struggling to believe that, which is almost all of us, my guess is that that's actually true. That sins that you thought would never be overcome can be overcome. What you see is a city that people have written off as being post-Christian and a hub for for post-Christian New Age spiritual thinking can be turned upside down for the glory of God. What you see is friends and neighbors and coworkers that were, that were too bad, too far away from God, who were too skeptical, who could never be reached. Those people are reached. Those people are saved. Those people are redeemed. Those people are restored. And those people are used as missionaries to the city and to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. It is a burden on my heart that you would not just believe this, but believe this and actually apply it to your life. Here's how Nehemiah closes. Verse 8, he says this, and the king granted me what I asked. So it's this crazy request, and the king says this. He says, okay, sounds good. And he gives the reason why. 
for the good hand of my God was upon me. Here's what I want to do. I just want to speak a final word of encouragement over you. I want, I want to speak to do two different types of people in this room. For some of you in this room, you are followers of Jesus. You're followers of Jesus, and as you read this story, and as you think about what, what would it look like if this was actually true in my life, what would it look like to actually experience the favor of God? What I want to speak into your life is that you have already received the favor of God. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to believe it. You, you have already believed on Jesus. What Christianity is not primarily about is what you do. It's about what's been done for you. And if you follow Jesus, the favor of God has not been earned by you, but it has been freely given to you. And because of that, the, the, the story that Nehemiah is living, the, the abundant faith that he is exhibiting, the impossible things for, for the glory of God that are being experienced can be experienced in your life as well. And I just want to plead with you to actually believe and to live out the things you claim to actually believe and live out. For those of you in this room who aren't followers of Jesus, here's what I want to say. This is the favor of God is a very simple thing to receive. It's an incredibly simple thing to receive. That rather than it being earned, I mean, that's, that's the way it is. Is a lot of times religions say it's, you know, it's about you earning it, but it's not earned. A lot of times religions say that it's about what you do, and they give you a list of rules to obey. A lot of times they say it's about what you know, and they give you, you know, a stack of books to memorize. In the end, it's not about what you do, but what's been done for you. And what I want to plead with you is to stop trying to earn the favor of God, to stop functioning out of your own strength and capacity to make things happen, but to lean mightily on the grace of God. And so my prayer for you, what I've been praying for those of you in this room who aren't followers of Jesus all week, is that you would turn away from your sin, that you would turn towards Jesus, and you would give the rest of your life to following him, the one who has earned God's favor on your behalf. Nehemiah works hard, but he leans mightily on the work of God. And even in the midst of an unglamorous waiting period, he sees God move in a mighty, mighty way. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you that you are who you say you are. And I pray that my heart is just really burdened for the men and women in this room who look at stories like this and say that it would be really nice if this were true. It seems like it's too good to be true. But I'm not living that story now. And so, God, I just pray. I just pray for men and women who are struggling to believe. I pray for Christians who are struggling to believe that any sin can be forgiven and that you can provide victory over any sin and its consequences. I pray for Christians who are failing to believe that anybody, anybody can be reached with the gospel, that nobody is too bad for the grace of God. And God, I, I pray also 
for the men and women here who aren't followers of Jesus, that they would understand that the front door is not their obedience, that the front door is not even joining the church, that the front door is turning away from sin and following Jesus and believing and to experience and to receive the favor of God. Nothing that was earned, but something that was earned on our behalf by the work of Jesus. We thank you for him. We pray that we have honored him and we pray that he is made famous in this city. God, do more than we could ask or imagine. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.